Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to season two, episode 13 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, one that we're calling Deal Killers and Poison Pills. That's right, it's part of our series on mergers and acquisitions and especially the sell side process. There are a number of things that we see that result in unfulfilled expectations and transactions that do not close. We're gonna unpack some of those for you today. I know it's gonna be a note-taking episode, so be sure to grab your pad and pen. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, is gonna join me behind the mic again today. Brew another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Well, welcome everyone once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. I'm joined by my partner once again today, DeWalker Sinha. DeWalker, you want to say hello to everybody? Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. He's a man of few words, at least in the introduction. Today, uh, we are once again playing along the theme of uh, M&A and sell-side advisory. And we've been talking a lot about transactions, going to market, mindsets, um, the process, what to expect, and everything along those lines. This episode is going to be a little bit different. Uh, We're going to call it deal killers and poison pills. And these are things that we see working with a lot of clients all throughout the U.S. Um, These are points that really um, hold transactions from closing create massive complications and things that you should be thinking about prior to going to market and probably things that you need to clean up sometimes potentially as far as a year in advance. So let's talk about the things that uh, create failure essentially in the in the M&A process. Uh, and one of the first of those uh, is the aspect of 1099s versus W-2s. Walker, do you want to start this one for us? Uh, sure. I think, uh, you know, when we look at talking to a lot of our clients on initial engagement of sell side, you know, we obviously in our due diligence process, we'll, we'll look to get uh, employment agreements, you know, any other, any agreements in place uh, as a more broader process. And um, let me rephrase that. If we don't get it, the buy side will. So I think it's, very important uh, for us as a sell side firm and advisory firm to you know be ahead of those questions with our client. And you know, 1099s are have traditionally been very common in this space and probably are still common in the space because some of these agreements might be around for six months, might be around for five years. Um, I, I think uh, I'm not going to speak a lot into the legal aspect of it. I'll uh, let you know our councils that we partner up with provide further guidance on it. Um, but you know there's significant focus from um, uh, regulatory issues, you know tax issues, IRS, when you have independent contractors. Now, now I understand why an associate 
might want to be an independent contractor from you know tax planning, tax strategy point, uh, side, um, not there to agree or disagree uh, with uh, uh, those arguments. But from a sell side process, I think it's provides significant uh, risk. Um, it, you know, sim- as simple as a non compete. You know, and how can somebody be a not an independent contractor and truly legitimately have a non compete? Um, and and those becomes issues as through a sell side process. Uh, because uh, you know when you go through it, there's new agreements that have to be in place. Um, now, you know, if somebody's working one day a week for you, or two days a week, I'm sorry, one day a week, two to three days a month for you, I could argue that independent contractor and um, there are some buy side firms will will not put a lot of focus on it uh, if it's truly a limited scope independent somebody that's part time in your business or limited part time. Not I don't even say part time, limited part time. Um, so I, I think 1099s, you know, tend to be a higher risk situation when you have a lot of uh, doctors as independent contractors, uh, especially if you have full-time employees or full-time team members, doctors that are independent contractors, um, you know, you know, the buy side will look to convert them to W2. Um, let me phrase that. If you have full-time independent contractors, the buy side will look to convert them to W2 employees. Uh, and that's going to cause a significant road bump in the process. Um, and you know, so we try to work for that in their initial go-to-market process. Um, it, it's not productive to take a deal to market, go through, expend all the financial dollars and time spent in a QV, legal diligence, just to discover a week before closing that you know Steve or Susie, who's been an independent contractor, needs to be a W-2 employee. And Steve or Susie may not convert to a W two employee, um, and 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 you know they may hold a lot of cards at that point a week before a transaction. So I, I think you know as 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 you as our audience members are going through um, their an existing you know um, team roster, they need to evaluate what is truly a ten ninety nine person and what's truly a W two person, and and you know yes understand that from an associate position you may want that. But on a you know macro level, legal due diligence, scaling the business, and enforcement of some contract languages, does an independent contractor truly make sense? Yeah, I, th- this seems to rear its ugly head on a relatively frequent basis, and I, I think it's something worth you know digging into. Uh, and certainly, if uh, if anybody in the audience has questions about that. Um, you know, consulting a, a labor law attorney uh, is prudent um, because it's a it's an element of risk that the buy side is not willing to take on. So you need to solve that ideally before before you go to market. Along the same lines, you know, let's let's talk about associate holdouts um, because associates are key to making a, a group practice go. Um, and along those same lines, you know, we can we can dig into employment contracts and uh, whether or not they're assignable and and kind of solve that. And that could be for employees as well as associates. But associates being the key economic engines of the business um, uh, can, can create issues um, where there are unfulfilled promises verbally that were made to associates and the, the game may be changing in the transaction and all that. So let's maybe dig into that aspect around associates, employment contracts and assignment. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, you know if 
one of the things, and it's it's not a truly going to be a significant deal killer if they're already W two employees, uh, because we've you know done transactions where you know we've had uh, employment contracts in place with their W two employees, and um, they're you know switching from you know our client you know um, an emerging group into a larger platform DSO. Um, so it's not a a true deal killer. It is a road bump. It is something you just got to work through um, and, and time it correctly. And this is probably done uh, or at or before a soft closing in the process. Um, so, you know, as if you're, you know, six months away or if you're renewing contracts today, um, if you're renewing, if you are going to be going to a marketing process in two to five years, um, one of the things to do is, you know, work with, you know, your counsel. And, you know, we have several counsels we work with that are good and that might be, uh, somebody you want to work with on a sell side, a legal representation that will structure the contract correctly and make sure the contracts are assignable. Now, some buyers may still look to have their own contract in place, but majority of buyers, if the contracts are assignable, truly assignable, um, then you know that tends to create less of a process issue right at closing because the contracts are assignable. Uh, now, we you know they need the contracts needs to be reasonable. They cannot have you know 50 mile non competes in place. Uh, because then, you know, buy side is going to say, well, that's not a contract we can truly assume because the enforceability of the contracts is not going to be, you know, uh, reasonable. So I, I think, so, you know, if you're in process, going to engage us now or going to be engaging Polaris in two to five years, you know, you know connect with us and you know, let us have the conversations with you of how to position your business now. And let's, let's have that conversation of what that means for your business in two to five years. Um, and the contract issues you need to be thinking through and we'll connect you with the right uh, uh, counsel that can work with you on those issues now and, and really start to build that relationship you know, with them. But associate holdouts, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when you're selling a business for 10, 15, 30, 40, 50 million dollars, you know, the buy side is you know, looking for uh, uh, continuity of providers, continuity of care. And if anything, they're looking to add more providers to that platform. So any attrition of providers is, you know, it's going to put some, you know, breaks onto the growth of that business. So, you know, um, definitely look at associate holdouts, look at your agreements and, and contact us to kind of work through, you know, how that might impact your impact yourself that process. Yeah. Suffice to say um, those aspects uh, when they're not addressed early on or, or proactively, even before going to market, like what you're talking about, um, they, that creates a ton of friction in the closing process. Uh, the closing process is highly emotional. You've heard us talk about that in prior episodes of the podcast. Um, anything you can do to to limit that period of anxiety uh, and bring some of the emotions down is is to your benefit. And the whole uh, associate holds out holdouts, employment contracts, getting new ones in place, and everything like that, close to the closing date is is high anxiety. Um, you would love to avoid that if at all costs. So something definitely to think about. Another thing to think about uh, is something I teased in the introduction. We call that a, a poison pill. Poison pills can take on a lot of different shapes and sizes. But one of the biggest ones, uh, one of the biggest culprits of it is is inherent in the operating agreement. So DeWalker, do you want to uh, talk about the operating agreement poison pills we see, and especially as it relates to partnerships here? Yeah, I, I think, uh, uh, I mean, so first of all, I think when in your in a, in a partnership, uh, 
you know, if you're forming one now or if you have one now, I think you should truly look at how decisions are made in the business and be ahead of that process as you're going through it. Um, you know, discuss actively if you if you know you have an interest to go through process with all the partners. Um, um, and 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 to bring that and make sure they're part of that process. Now, but yeah, I mean, I think you know, in the one of the poison pills we see in a operating agreement is the de- decision tree process of you know bringing on a third partner or going to you know having a, a process to go through to market. So if you're in a partnership of 50-50 or you know in a third a third a third, and you don't have a process of a drag along tag along provisions. Or where majority can make a decision to to have a liquidity event and bring in a partner, then let's have that conversation early with all the par- partners and educate them. Um, but because it's it's really difficult as you go through the process, you get a term sheet on the table, and if a partners you know start to say, well, I'm not ready, uh, and have a holdout, and and I think holdouts can happen from an associate position as we talk about, holdouts can happen from a partners position. And I'm not there to agree or disagree, you know, uh, when one partner says, I'm not ready to go. I think what you really have to understand, why are they saying that? Why are they not ready to go? Um, and and truly try to solve for that. And if the answer is, you know, economics and it's equitable, then and I think you just need to kind of think through that process further. Uh, but if the issues are, you know, non-economic that you just need to kind of work through and provide some confidence around, then we need to be ahead of that. But you know how you know if, if you don't have a majority decision process on a, on a in bringing on a kind of doing a liquidity event, um, you, you definitely don't want to be at the closing table and have holdouts from partners. Uh, I think that's a very uh, stressful time for all parties. It tends to destroy goodwill. I mean, I'm going to exclude the buy side for a second right now, but it's going to destroy the goodwill between the partners. Um, if it happens or doesn't happen, because then you feel like one partner solving for themselves, um, and I think that's a very difficult thing in a partnership when one partner solves for themselves, whether it forces the collective business. So having a majority decision tree process, trying to be equitable, being transparent in the conversation of what you're looking to do, I think these are really good things in the process. So have an open dialogue. If you're uncomfortable having that open dialogue, we you know get calls all the time from different uh, uh, from partners. Uh, in a partnership that want to you know, kind of convey their position on things and us to kind of be the mediator between two parties to truly educate if that makes the best sense. If it doesn't make the best sense, it doesn't make the best sense. Um, again, you know, I, I said that in our previous podcast, when's the best time to sell? Best time to sell is when you're ready to bring on the next partner uh, to help them, to, to have them come in and help you grow. So, you know, operating agreements are, are essential to understanding how decisions will be made. Are you ready to go exit process? Yeah, I, I think uh, before you enter the sell side process, you probably need to take a second pass at your operating agreement if you have uh, a partnership structure, if there are multiple equity holders in the business. And, you know, any anywhere where it requires unanimous um, consent, uh, which is usually around selling the business, um, that could create a sticking point um, if the partnership is not structured equally where you have minority partner holdouts. So we try to, in our consulting process, when we end up having uh, to work through a process with with our clients on redrafting an operating agreement, we really try to um, avoid having unanimous provisions at, at any level of the operating agreement. It just creates 
unnecessary challenges. The other thing I would say is, you know, you may have a, a minority partner uh, who might not be able to outvote you or, or he or she might not be able to hold up a vote for something. But if that minority partner plays a, a large um, role in the business operationally or clinically or economically in some way, they could be instrumental in getting the deal done through their contribution to, to what the business is. And if they're a holdout, if they don't want to go along, that would create jeopardy from a buy side standpoint. So really being able to, to herd the cats irrespective of uh, ownership and equity or what the cap table says that somebody owns in terms of percentage, really want to think through who they are, what they do, the role they play in the organization currently, and the role they would play going forward, because that can create another element of jeopardy too. So um, let's talk uh, Let's talk about leases and uh, leases in terms of being assignable for those that don't own the real estate. This is another piece that can um, uh, create unnecessary challenges, once again, in the closing process. You want to dig into that? Yeah, I think uh, so. I, mean, I think the easier one is affiliated leases, which is where a significant amount of our clients in the consulting side and on sell side tend to own the real estate. So those are considered affiliated leases because you have a, a, a arm's length uh, a party uh, that owns the lease. And I think those are easier to kind of work through because you just want to make sure you have good leases in place that are assignable. If not, you know, in most cases, a buy side may want some revisions and have their own drafts uh, on a lease. I, I think it's very important to early in the process, you know, if you have a third party um, uh, lease agreement with a landlord, um, you know, get you know get us involved, and you know, we obviously get the you know under, try to understand which are third party leases, and working through negotiating any assignments that are possible, uh, and that can take you know we've seen landlords that are very deal friendly, um, you know that'll take a week. And these are typically the bigger, you know, uh, landlord uh, real estate management firms, um, and then some landlords that are typically smaller, privately held um, landlords. They can take four weeks, uh, and that can that can cause significant amount of of uh, undue stress right when you're about to close a deal. So again, this kind of goes into our our due diligence process. And again, as the QV is getting completed, you know, we kind of go towards uh, leases and make sure that they they have. Uh, that we can work through that. Um, the easiest way to 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 improve that process in a lease is make sure they're assignable, uh, they're reasonably assignable, uh, that you don't have to have a new lease in place. Um, you still have to go through the approval process with the uh, third-party landlord to make sure you can, the lease can be assigned to you. But an assignable lease allows you to work through that process in a much more efficient way than if the lease was not assignable. So, if you're if you're due de novos, if you're buying practices, um, you know, uh, and even if you've signed a lease that is not assignable, but you have a good relationship uh, with the landlord, start having that dialogues with us early in the process, so we can provide guidance and tell you here's the things we want to be looking for in the lease. So, I think you can see from our sell side firm, we're very intimately involved in a lot of the legal issues. Bringing the right legal partners to have those conversations and provide guidance. Uh, because these are a lot of the, the small things between a deal that cause uh, small little road bumps, and sometimes small road bumps can cause big issues um, in the process. So, 
again, leases that are assignable, very impactful, make it much more efficient. Uh, and then more importantly, having the right dialogue with us early in the process, uh, us with your counsel, with the buy side, to, to, to start the dialogue with a uh, third-party landlord. Yeah, the worst case scenario is that you're, you know, a couple of weeks from closing, everybody's in a mad dash to hit a deadline, probably end of calendar year or something like that, where you're trying to meet a closing date. There's, uh, you know, whirlwinds of emotion, there's tons of, of activity, and, and, and you're trying to negotiate a lease with a landlord that, uh, that moves at his or her own pace, and it's not very fast. That's that can hold up a transaction getting done, and it really is again a point of anxiety that you would rather avoid if at all uh, possible. So um, you might want to check your leases and, and also think through that process. Obviously, we do it with our clients. Last piece here in terms of deal killers and poison pills are what we call debt levels, um, and specifically for uh, a business that's carrying a lot of debt goes to market. Transaction value may come in a little light, or it could be that the cash component is light relative to the equity role or something like that. After uh, after paying taxes, uh, third-party advisor fees, then you're obligated to pay off the, the remaining principal on the loan, and there's not a whole heck of a lot of cash left over. This is a scenario that we see a lot in the, the high value solo practice space, but it can also impact uh, group practices. You wanna put on your banking hat a little bit and talk through this one? Yeah, so I think, uh, you, know, you know, obviously a lot of our uh, emerging groups, they're in a very aggressive growth mode and you know, they, they probably deploy or, uh, or, and utilize debt. Um, to grow their businesses through acquisitions or de novos. Um, I, I think, you know, this conversation, you know, is very material early in engagement. And, you know, we do it all the time, you know, which is truly understand the outstanding debt in the business. And this is, for us, is probably around the initial engagement time with the client where, where we're asking the question, how much is how much do you have in debt outstanding? Um, and, you know, that allows us on a sell side firm to tell you, you know, what our opinion would be on an equity role. Should it be 20%, 30%, or 40%? Now, traditionally, majority of people that, you know, are engaging Polaris or having dialogue with Polaris tend to do a more of an equity role. Uh, as, as, you know, we've talked about in the past, we're big on structure and overprice. Um, and so, but that being said, we want to be you know, cognizant of uh, how much outstanding debt is out there, what tax liabilities will be out there. So early in the process, you know, before you even go to market, um, in process, you know, obviously we'll have debt schedules and outstanding debt balances. Very, you know, an estimated waterfall, estimated valuation, um, and and that waterfall should take into account, you know, the enterprise valuation, equity role, debt proceeds, or net proceeds after debt, after taxes. And you know, obviously, in a very active dialogue with your CPA, um, you know, we don't want to be providing tax advice, and we don't know your basis. So I think I, you know, we said that last year, as there was a big rush towards the sell side process, um, is in actively, proactively involve your tax advisor to make sure you understand your basis uh, or lack of any basis you may have out there, and then you know, what does the economic waterfall look like? I think just having that initial conversation with us being able to show you what we think the, the the more than likely net proceeds will be allows us to set real expectations 
you know, with our clients creates a, a good foundation of trust early in the process and allows us to, you know, continuously measure that needle as the economic terms may change from a sell-side QV to a buy-side QV, you know, any other negotiations of uh, 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 holdbacks or earnouts that we may be looking for, uh, I think becomes very material for us uh, in the process. So, I, yeah, the understanding debt levels, material, again, uh, beyond that, let's get a waterfall created for you to make sure you understand the uh, true net proceeds of a transaction with all you know, estimated closing costs from your side. This has been another Tour de Force episode, DeWalker. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. We, uh, we, we try to give a lot of specificity in our podcast and all of our content, really. But this is a, an episode that, you know, these are issues that we see a lot in the sell side process. Um, and they typically um, creep up late in the process. If y'all who are in the audience and are contemplating potentially going to market this year, really go back and listen to this episode. There are six or eight things that all of you need to look at, think through, um, and probably work with an advisor like Polaris before you even make the commitment to going to market. Getting clarity on these uh, aspects that could be deal killers, poison pills, or could cost you a lot of money uh, and a lot of anxiety at the deal table. If you can get those out of the way, probably have a, a much smoother process with arguably a much better outcome. So, DeWalker, thanks again for joining me on the show today. We really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. Didn't have much of a choice. That's what partners are all about, you know, but he obviously provides a lot of uh, clarity and insight. Obviously, we hope you find all of this to be educational and informative. And if you do, feel free to drop us a, a line directly. If you've got questions or comments, you can reach me directly at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. And DeWalker is obviously DeWalker at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Once again, thanks to my partner, DeWalker Sinha, for joining me on the show today. He is always a wealth of information, and I think today's episode was uh, was kind of a neat one. We uh, scoped that one out and thought that um, you know poison pills would be a, a heck of a, a subject matter line. So I hope you got a lot out of it, um, and I hope you're obviously finding a lot of value in the guidance we give and the things you want to think about in this context before you go to market. Before we wrap up today's show, um, I want to uh, to share some compliments we had gotten along the way on our uh, mergers and acqui mergers acquisitions and affiliations masterclass. We're holding the next one on April 21st and 22nd. There are still seats available, so if you'd like to sign up, I encourage you to do that. It's obviously uh, a limited format, so we don't take more than about 10 people in a class. Um, there are seats available uh, if you'd like to join us. The ratings we've gotten on all of our master classes have been a uh, 10 out of 10 on the net promoter score, meaning um, would you recommend the course to a colleague or, or friend and um, a, a 10 is a perfect score and we've, we've yet to have anything below that. So I hope we can keep the streak intact. Um, the, uh, the compliments we're getting uh, was that, uh, the mergers acquisitions and affiliations masterclass was eye-opening and mind-expanding. Uh, it allowed me to see into the future and how to execute on my vision worth every penny. This was DSO 101. Anyone who wants to understand and navigate the DSO space in terms of acquisitions, uh, it, this course is a must. Extremely valuable course explaining the benefits of growing your group 
uh, and acquisition multiples and on and on and on. So the, the feedback has been really phenomenal. Um, and I know that most of the people are still growing their groups through acquisition. So I encourage you to join us uh, if you can. Uh, April 21st and 22nd be a great course. And obviously those who've uh, preceded you have given us uh, strong, strong kudos. One other thing I want to uh, to tease before I uh, um, finish up the show today is a book I, I recently went back and reread. Um, I think probably all of us at some point in our history have read the book Animal Farm by George Orwell. I read it, I think, back in high school, and that was a long time ago. Um, I can't really remember exactly when I read it, but I remember having read it. And it's one of those books that always makes an impression on you just based around the fable and the way that it's told. I don't know why. I It was, it was on my shelf. I grabbed it, uh, went back and reread it. This thing's a, a short book. Obviously, it's maybe a little bit over 100 pages and it reads pretty quickly. Um, I don't know if it's relative to what's going on in the world right now with Russia's invasion of the Ukraine and just so much tumult and chaos and then the prospect of you know, communism rearing its ugly head or totalitarianism rearing its ugly head again, uh, or maybe just my stage of life or something. But for those of you who've read Animal Farm, you probably remember it. If you're like me, you didn't remember it very clearly. And I think reading that book a second time makes me take a beat and stop and pause and really just express a little bit of gratitude for the country that I was born into. Um, the older I get, the more I appreciate uh, the country that I live in, the freedom that we have, the opportunities uh, in front of us, you know, frankly, the opportunity to fail. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there are a lot of people in the world that don't have that when they wake up in the morning. Um, and then there are a lot of people that believe that with the growth in the federal government and a lot of other aspects that we're losing freedoms every day. And you can make a good case for that as well. But I, I think Animal Farm is, is one that really tells that story from a, from a slow bleed to tyranny. Um, and I believe that that will never happen in the United States. I choose to believe that. But I know that there are a lot of places in the world that are a lot worse off than we are. And like I say, this was just one of those books that for some reason I grabbed it off my bookshelf and read it over the course of about a weekend. And it it really kind of recalibrated some of the way I was thinking about things. And if I know that there are a lot of you in the audience that are readers every bit as much as I am, I'm sure you can get the book on Audible or, you know, uh, listen to the audio version of it. Um, but for those who are avid readers, um, it makes you stop and think. So I'd encourage you. If it's been a while since you've read it, or if you certainly if you've never read it, Animal Farm by George Orwell, O-R-W-E-L-L, is worth a read. Uh, you can read it in a couple of hours. It's not hard, um, but the subject matter kind of makes you think in terms of the way the, the parable is told. So hope you find that uh, interesting as well. I obviously hope that you're getting a lot out of our podcast, uh, judging on the feedback and the compliments I get on many of the calls that I take. I know that you are out there and I appreciate all the kind words on behalf of me, DeWalker and our entire team. If you do get a lot out of the podcast, please do leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. If you got a question, feel free to uh, submit it to me directly at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.